Hello and welcome back again to the Digital Sociology Podcast with me, Chris Till. And uh, there's been a bit of a gap again between uh, episodes as I had a bit of a break over Christmas and then got swamped with work when I came back. Uh, so there's uh, uh, more of a gap than I wanted, but um, we're back again with a really great episode with an interesting um, interview uh, I did with Professor Nick uh, Cauldry, who is Professor of Media, Communications and Social Theory at the London School of Economics. Uh, and in this episode, we're talking about some work, um, uh, some, uh, theoretical work he's been doing um, with uh, w- with other authors uh, who I'll um, mention in, in the podcast and um, uh, and on my uh, blog and on the, the, the podcast details, um, looking at the role which um, media, particularly digital media, is playing um, in our lives today in some really interesting ways. Um, we'll talk about his book that he wrote with uh, Andreas Hepp called The Mediated Construction of Reality, where we where he suggests, or they suggest, that um, we're not properly perhaps taking account um, always of the role which uh, media plays in how we understand the world and in, in, in how our experience uh, of reality is shaped by media and particularly digital media and, and data is what we'll talk about uh, and also some other work um, uh, more recently he's been doing with um, Ulysses uh, Mejias um, in which he suggests a really fascinating way of understanding how um, our everyday lives are being colonized uh, it means that kind of literally really colonized by by big data um, and in the process kind of critiques um, some of the, the digital labor theories um, some of which I've been responsible for um, which he has kind of some, some kind of um, uh, interesting interesting critique and um, uh, opposition to in some ways uh, so I think this is a really great chat hope you'll enjoy it and as I said, I'll be putting more details up um, and links um, in the podcast description and also on my blog, which is uh, this is not a sociology dot blog. Um, and uh, for more info, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Chris H Till, and you can follow uh, Nick at um, Cauldry Nick. That's C O U L D R Y N I C K. Okay, thanks for listening, and here's my chat with Nick. Hello again. Uh, So today I'm talking to uh, Nick Cauldry, um, who is Professor of Media, Communications and Social Theory at the London School of Economics. So hi, Nick. Hi there. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi, thanks for talking to me. Pleasure. Yeah, so um, today we're going to talk about um, uh, some of Nick's work. I mean, uh, Nick's uh, conducted a lot of work, written uh, lots of books and articles. Um, but we'll concentrate on some of his more recent work, uh, which I think is of particular interest to this podcast, this digital sociology podcast. Um, and so um, hopefully we'll be able to kind of uh, get into some of um, Nick's really interesting um, interesting work. Um, uh, but I think uh, both, of the, both of the main things we'll be talking about today are, are um, co-authored, uh, pieces. So I'll make sure I mention 
uh, Nick's uh, co-authors, and I'll put links up to the articles and, uh, and books that we that we talk about uh, on the uh, podcast details and on my blog. Uh, so um, I've been interested in your work for a while, Nick, and I think especially because you, you you come from this um, uh, approach which is very much steeped in 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 sociology and social theory uh, and in and in media, and I think that's a really kind of interesting kind of combination. And you um you wrote a book which um, uh, was published a couple of years ago with uh, Andreas Hepp called yeah. the, the Mediated Construction of Reality, um, in which you sort of argue for a, a phenomenological approach, I think, to understanding, right. yeah, to understanding media in general. Um, but you draw on the work of Berger and Luckman, their book, The Social Construction of Reality, and obviously that's alluded to in, that, in the title of your book as well. Yeah. Um, could you tell me what it is that you find helpful about that kind of the approach that you sort of take and adapt from Berger and Luckman and why you think it's important for contemporary media context? Yes, sure. Well, in a way, we don't so much adapt from their framework, because um, if you just have a look at it 50 years on from when they wrote it, um, they almost completely neglect media. Um, they just don't think media in any sense or technologies in general are really very uh, important. And that's a big flaw in their approach. But rather than uh, adapt and try and redo exactly what they did and take over their framework. What we do instead is, if you like, um, reoccupy the sorts of questions, the very big questions they set out to ask. So how is the social world constructed? Um, how and from where do we get our knowledge of social reality? How is that what becomes knowledge? How is it constructed as the stuff of knowledge? And those are really good questions still to ask. But the answers we have to give today in a world saturated by media and saturated by algorithmic processes are obviously very different from the ones they gave. And in fact, in some ways, are almost at right angles to some of the things they say. There are a lot of tensions in the book between the answers we feel have to be given now and those which they thought were possible. So just to give you an example, their, their view of social knowledge is that it's basically constructed by human beings. It's what we say to each other, what we learn from each other, and so on, how we correct each other to understand the world, if you like, in a collaborative way. Some of that's still true, of course, but it doesn't take any account of the role of infrastructures, of data collection, data processing, and so on. Um, and they also saw the world as transparent basically that if we couldn't understand it from time to time in the end by asking the right people we solved the problem and it became transparent again and again that's not obviously true of the world run by big data uh, and platforms whose workings none of us understand in detail so there are a lot of very interesting tensions with their conclusions, but they only come out as tensions if you start from where they started, which is to ask the big classic questions of social theory, which is how is the social world constructed and uh, how do we come to know it? Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. And um, I think something you point out in the book is that, uh, as you just mentioned there as well, really, that they sort of all, pretty much all entirely overlook uh, media. Um, and um, even though, when they were writing, uh, so uh, 1967, is it they wrote their book? Yeah, I think it, yeah. our edition anyway was 66. So that's why we yeah. uh, got our book out in the last month of 2016, 50 years on. We just about made the anniversary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but even at that stage, really, um, 
it would seem that the world was reasonably media saturated, um, not to the extent to today, but um, it does it does seem like I mean we, we should we shouldn't be too kind of too critical of them, but it, it does seem that the, uh, there was a lot of advertising, there's a lot of TV, um, you know, recorded music and all these kinds of things at the time. Do you have any kind of uh, any kind of guesses as, as to why they why why they avoided that kind of um, or, or, or or overlooked that? Well, I think it's an interesting question. Now we can look back and see how weird this perspective was. But actually, it was completely typical of almost all social theory and mm -hmm. sociology at the time. It was only really if you leave aside the um, uh, Marshall McLuhan and those massive popular sure. culture debates about media, which everyone was aware of, but they didn't actually change social theory or sociology very much. It wasn't really until Giddens' work in the late 80s, um, and really I mean the late 80s, not even mm -hmm. his work in the early 80s, that the essential role played in media, played by media in underlining globalization, for example, started to become an essential topic for some sociologists. And even then, it's taken 10 to 15 years since then for the rest of sociology to catch up, or maybe even still today, it hasn't caught up. So I think they weren't uh, uh, lone culprits. Um, but they had a strange way of talking about media. In the one or two places they do, they refer to the uh, pictures of uh, spacecraft hovering over the moon. Sure, yeah. uh, it was a year or two before man landed on the moon, but um, they refer to media as providing a, some sort of distant entertainment, entertainment from a distant world that obviously, they say this directly, has nothing to do with the world that we actually live in around us. Yeah. Um, now, the idea that the world of media is somehow distant from what we do is now blatantly absurd to everyone, old and young. Um, so it's simply not a starting point. So the question is, how does that change the way you formulate the question of how social reality gets constructed? It clearly does. We live it. We know that. But how does it change the way you look at the building blocks of that? And that's really what the book that book is about. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. And I think uh, how you kind of talk about that is that data significantly contributes to the um, socially available stock of knowledge. Yeah. Which I think that's the phrase you take from Bergen Luckman, but of course using it in, in this slightly different context. Um, so you've seen, especially you're seeing their data as being central to the construction of social reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you see the consequences are of taking, taking on that position um, that, that data is, is so central to actually how we construct reality itself? Well, it's, it's a very difficult area. And to be quite honest, when we first planned the book, we weren't going to have a chapter on data. Um, I was right. only just starting to get interested in, the, in that myself at the time, as was Andreas. And we just knew that to think about data in the sort of phenomenological framework was going to be very, very hard. So we put it off and then we got to a point uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe two years before we um, uh, finished the book when it it became obvious that that wasn't going to work, <laughs> that right. we would just have to have a chapter on data. So I tried to write it. Uh, I think it was mid 2014. It might have been 2013 and tried to write that chapter starting out from uh, the classics like Bowker and Starr and so on on categorization. Sure. And we found that as we did that, that was actually 
the most interesting part of the book because it really exposed the the limits of that um, phenomenological approach that didn't take the materiality of communication seriously. Um, but since we were taking it seriously, it wasn't a problem for us. Um, but it really that's where we got to the idea of offering a materialist phenomenology that, you know, mm. deals with experience, but understands that experience is only possible in very material settings, which include infrastructures of uh, communication. So if you take data as important, then how does that work in constructing social knowledge? Well, I think it's on multiple levels. Um, there are the big stories about data, the stories about big data, for example, that yeah. offer us a claim to know the human condition completely differently and to do science differently and so on. And they contain quite a large amount of rhetoric and ideology, but they are important in shaping who gets grants and uh, what the mm -hmm. questions asked in the grants and so on. So they are important. Um, and then you've got the very specific stories built on a lot of data processing, which lead to judgments and actions, whether you get insurance or not, whether you get a loan or not um, to, to buy something, um, whether you get a discount on your purchase as opposed to the next person who, who doesn't and so on. And then underlying all those very specific things that make a big difference to us personally, there are all the underlying uh, wheels, if you like, of data processing that, um, that collect data, um, aggregated in various forms, creating clusters, or some people call it data doubles that create mm. entities that are matched with us and are the, the target of the sort of decision-making processes through data that actually affect us as human beings, even though they're not directly about us, they're actually about these data aggregates. Um, so there are all these different levels and most of them are automated. So mm. That's very, very different from the way that Berger and Lutman thought social knowledge was built up because they always thought, though, it's complicated and it gets sedimented, if you like, in infrastructures and institutions. In the end, you can ask someone and say, well, why do we do this? Why do we think about it this way? And a human being could give you an answer, even though they'd have to reflect and bring up to the surface stuff that was normally just implicit, tacit, if you like. Now we know that's not entirely true. There are a lot of things that are ordering the world around us. The world that seems to be the social world we live in and uh, judges us socially, which are actually generated by algorithmic processes, entirely automated because they have to be given the scale. And that's a really interesting uh, new starting point for thinking about what social knowledge is. Uh, which only comes about if you pose the question from the Berger and Luckman starting point, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what, yeah, that's one of the things which I think is really, really novel about uh, about this approach. Um, and uh, as you've mentioned, lots of people have done work on um, and some really great empirical work on uh, on the impact of that kind of automation and of algorithms, particularly for kind of discrimination uh, and these kinds of things, which is which, of course, is, is really crucial. But um, this kind of more kind of um, uh, this more theoretically oriented um, approach, drawing on 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 their work, uh, Berger and Luckman's work, really gets at something um, on a kind of on, on a more fundamental level, perhaps. Well, I hope so, and I, I think it's also, um, uh, and this is you know a challenge all of us as sociologists are facing today. It, it brings back 
the classic questions of sociology mm-hmm. um, to the center um, where they can't be ignored, not because, you know, <laughs> we want to keep our jobs and we, we think it's important to keep asking these <laughs> questions. But for the more serious reason, these are the questions that people are mm-hmm. really interested in. They are worried about who is making judgments about them and what it's based on and whether that basis has any possible interaction with the way they think about themselves as human beings, mm-hmm. the way their family think about them and their friends do and so on. So the, the questions of social theory are actually not so abstract at all. They are related to how we try and make sense yeah. of what the hell's going on with data and why we often fail and why we find it really difficult to understand what's happening. So I think it's a, it's a basis potentially for a renaissance of social theory. Um, and, you know, the what seemed to be outdated, the old sociology of knowledge, which <laughs> um, used to be taught decades ago and isn't always taught these days. But it's, it's the central question or one of them of our age now. And it uh, explains why social theory is still really, um, really important. Um, there's actually another aspect to that, which, again, is very different from what Berger and Lukman were dealing with. Because they would have assumed that the big institutions that shape knowledge are the, basically public um, or they're state driven. Right. That might have been another reason why market media they would have been much less interested in. Um, but uh, today, again, that's not true. We know the, the vast amount of processing power that's necessary to produce uh algorithmic calculations that order the credit market and so on and so forth is all or most of it with private corporations. Yeah. Uh, the cloud, which is the essential infrastructure for the whole data processing and archiving world that we depend on, is, of course, um, more than 50 percent dominated by Amazon, <laughs> yeah. uh, a naked capitalist profit making organization that absolutely is opposed to the state. Um, in many respects. And the state is often the buyer of data now and data processing capacity. So again, once you look at it from this point of view, you see all the building blocks of the old model of society, um, state, market, citizens, civil society, and so on, are being shifted in their relations to each other. And data processing is right at the heart of those power relations. So again, um, Putting the big classic questions, actually, and finding we get very different answers today is a, re- is a really interesting way of uh, reviving um, the interest in those classic questions and, of course, the importance of doing sociology today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I mean, that's a good I think it's a good way to transition onto uh, a, a particular article which was just published um, this year. Um, uh, although I think um, it published online this year, but I think it probably have a 2019 um, yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah. Um, which I suppose we can see as being one of those particular uh, applications um, of this um, and demonstrations of the significance of this. So this is an article you wrote with, um, I might pronounce this wrong, uh, Ulysses Mejias? Yeah, Mejias. Yeah, he's from Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, on uh, data, uh, big data colonialism, I think is how you phrased it. Yeah. Um, which I think you suggest that our everyday lives are being appropriated to feed the demands of big data. Um, so could you tell me a bit about how you see that working? What is it that, that they're appropriating about us uh, yeah. to sort of feed their big data infrastructure? 
Yeah, um, this article and it, it's it, it's uh, taken out of a book that we've also just finished, which we might come back to a bit later, is an attempt to take maybe two or three steps back from everything that's going on with data and see whether we've um, got the right framework for seeing how it all interrelates. I mean, most of the debate, particularly this year, 2018, is is about a lot of the symptoms of what's going on with data, the fake news debate mm. um, and so on, the worries about particular parts of the data sector, what we in our piece call the social quantification sector, um, particular parts of it, in fact, that the platforms where we hang out socially and so on and what they're doing and how they present news to us, what they present as our everyday social, the important reality which is certainly a sort of question that Berger and Lutman would have been very, very interested in yeah. been alive today. But we suggest in, the, in this new work that I've been doing since 2016, there's actually an even um, bigger question about the whole land grab that's going on through data of, if you like, human life itself. Um, we argue in the piece that um, the biggest change going on isn't just the fact we're doing platforms are important and growing very fast and we're spending a lot of time on them, but it's what's happening and is able to happen through that, which is, if you like, to appropriate human life for economic value potentially through the medium um, of data. And we argue this happens through what we call data relations, um, which are the sort of very ordinary relations we enter into when we get any app on our phone or we go to any platform to get a service or to um, just to hang out with people and so on. And we, of course, have to accept certain terms and conditions of being on the platform, which almost always, not always luckily, but almost always involve the extraction of data from us, um, often for purposes which we barely know, although the recent legal changes with the GDPR have tried to limit this to some degree. Um, and we think those data relations, although they're very banal, very, very ordinary, are actually fundamental, um, <clears throat> not just to how we know the social world, but literally to the basis on which the social world becomes possible anymore, that it's based now around principles of extraction of value. Um, <laughs> so you can see from that that the relation between the social and the economic suddenly has become rather more intimate (laughs) than it could have been even even 20 years ago, let alone 50, 60 years ago. So that's the sort of basic move that we we make in that that piece. Yeah, so you kind of position that as as a type of colonialism, uh, I think, in the sense that um, uh, people from uh, Britain or... um, um, or France or Belgium or whatever in, in, in years gone by have gone to uh, foreign lands and just appropriated raw materials, uh, land, uh, people in some cases, um, uh, and they've been able to sort of build, uh, to, to accumulate capital on the basis of taking those things as free or extremely cheap. Um, and, um, but it's the importance is that those things um, whether it was was land or materials or whatever were positioned as um, as almost outside of capital relations in the sense that they could just be taken by um, um, by those people. And you suggest so that something similar is is occurring here really that our, our is, is, 
correct me if I'm wrong, that our our social relations, our social lives are seen as uh, as these kind of uh, just raw materials which can be legitimately appropriated at very relatively low cost by these corporations. W would that be right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, with just to run through a few things we're not saying, because it, it, yeah. it's, it's a complicated point that we, we, we're not saying that um, capitalism isn't involved because all of this is about the continuing development of capitalism. That, that yeah. goes without saying. And we've been enormously inspired by people like Shoshana Zuboff with a surveillance yeah. capitalism diagnosis, which we, we totally agree with in terms of identifying a lot of the problems. The question is, does it capture everything? Is there something mm -hmm. even bigger going on, which could be about the relations between colonialism and um, uh, capitalism? Um, we're also not saying that this new colonialism, if that's what it is, um, completely replaces the historic capitalism, colonialism, sorry. Um, the question is um, then whether this new um, colonialism entirely replaces uh, the historic colonialism that all of us, of course, are very familiar with. Uh, Ulysses, as a Mexican, is particularly familiar with more than I am because I was on the wrong side of <laughs> history in this in this matter. And we would certainly insist that historic colonialism hasn't died. It continues in various neo-colonial forms. And some of what Facebook does often seems rather neo-colonial, as some people have argued. Yeah. But we're suggesting that even though that's true, it's possible, as with any big movement in history, that new forms of core colonialism can actually come into being. And if you abstract, and it is an abstraction a little bit in the article, from some of the particularly painful and disgusting aspects of historic colonialism, which is its gratuitous violence and so on and so forth, and go to the core historic function that colonialism played, its core function was to literally open up the world, as you just said, so that it was just there for appropriation by a particular part of the world, i.e. Europe initially, before America started to become itself powerful uh, economically. Um, and we're arguing a similar type of world historical, world changing move is going on now. But the difference is that what's being appropriated, what's becoming the target, isn't um, land, it isn't the resources in the land or the bodies necessary to mine the land and so on, to pick cotton and so on. It is literally human life without limit. Uh, our interior life, every aspect of our life and experience um, becomes almost miraculously through data relations available for a new type of extraction of value through this medium of data. Uh, transforming the just the flow of everyday life with all its messiness and untidiness into entry uh, data, which can go in a database, can be aggregated as such to form new types of category, which can then be processed on the basis of which judgments can be made and on the basis of which all that underlying data can be sold for value. This is a radical new possibility for human life and of course for capital and really like for human actors, those who have power. Um, and in that sense, it's for that reason we argue we need to think about it in terms of the bigger frame of colonialism, um, which of course didn't just exist in isolation, it paved over a century or two for what became capitalism.
yeah. the profits, the colossal, unimaginably large profits of colonialism, um, and the totally new relationship to the territory of half of the world from Europe that was the core of colonialism, made possible the birth of industry and so on and so forth. Um, and we're suggesting in the piece that this new colonialism, this data colonialism, could pave the way for a radically new, if you like, turbocharged mm. capitalism whose scape, scape, scale and scope we can't fully predict today because it will involve such profound transformations. But by trying to point to its beginning now, we're trying to alert us, <laughs> maybe warn us, of the dangers of this, but also get a sense of the sheer scale of the transformation underway today, which you wouldn't get to just by saying, yes, this is just another intensification of capitalism, mm. which we're utterly familiar with and we know will not stop. There's something bigger going on. And that's why we use perhaps controversially the word uh, colonialism. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the um, uh, one of the things that makes me think about it, um, just in, in terms of a, a case of this, is um, I know um, Facebook um, and Google, I think, have both tried to do similar things of, of, sort of giving free internet access or heavily, heavily subsidised uh, internet access to um, uh, less wealthy countries and developing countries um, if, um, if, if actually done just through their platforms. Um, so I think I think Facebook's version was called Free Basics. Yeah, um, you, you, you'll, I'm sure you'll be aware of. And so um, they give kind of free uh, mobile internet access and uh, install all the infrastructure for this. Um, but ev literally everything is done through their platforms, and and that would seem that would seem to be kind of consistent with with what you're saying. But also I think more broadly, just that as we've seen, and as you just mentioned with the the Amazon case the whole um, internet kind of infrastructure is being in, in perhaps increasingly dominated by a few huge corporations, which to some extent remind me of like the old kind of East India company or, or yeah. you know, these, these kinds of companies uh, who, which were like kind of uh, uh, um, well, bigger than in many senses than countries um, themselves in terms of their, their, their political significance and their, and their wealth. And so certainly that analogy in many ways seems to hold up in, in that kind of context. Well, I hope so. And, and that's a very good example, the East India Company. We, we talk about that in, in, the, in, the, in the book yeah. um, in detail. And also, we also talk a lot more about some of the what happened in Latin America. But both are interesting. The, the East India Company, because um, Britain or England at the time is the most successful of the uh, uh, early modern imperial states um, relied on corporations, which, as you mm -hmm. say, were bigger than the state. They were quasi, they were the state in India, uh, in the yeah. colony. Um, and therefore, what we're dealing with now, which is corporations which are clearly larger than at least half the states in the world, has a historical precedent. So that's one mm -hmm. example of how that longer colonial um, lens, if you like, enables us to see in a different way what at the moment seems just very strange. Um, but it's related, of course, to the scale of economic extraction happening then um, in historic colonialism and happening today. Um, another interesting parallel that comes out uh, that we mentioned in the article briefly from this historical lens, the colonial lens, is to look at our terms of service when we we, we we take an app on our phone or where we sign up to a platform, as we all do, um, that 
the we know that we have no time to read what's in the terms and conditions. We barely understand it. It's not written in a language that's easy to understand unless you're extremely technical and, and have a legal background as well. And in any event, we, we just want to go on and use the app and, and we don't really have time to do it. So we just press accept. Well, there's a strange parallel between that and what happened when the Spanish uh, Empire in its very beginning tried to give a legal basis to the grabbing of the gold of Latin America. Um, they actually drafted a document called the requerimiento, which means demand uh, in Spanish. And they drafted it at the Spanish court with their best lawyers involved. And that was designed to legitimate grabbing all the gold. And it basically it read out various uh, conditions which um, were deemed to have been accepted by the colonized population. <laughs> in other words, if they didn't accept the Spanish doing whatever they wanted to do, then their women could be raped and so on and so forth. In other words, anything could be done. It was gave absolute power. Of course, that was in the context of an extreme form of violence, which was necessary because there were no social relations at that time between the Spanish yeah. court and the colonized population. They literally had no knowledge of each other whatsoever. There wasn't even the beginnings of a social order. So violence was the only means to take the resources. Um, but at the same time, the weird trick they had of what they did was they would go to a village where they wanted the gold in the middle of the night, um, stay a mile or two outside the village and read out this declaration, this demand in a language Spanish that they knew the locals didn't understand, even if they'd been there in the middle of the night listening. Yeah. Um, and then on the basis that they'd accepted it, they go into the village and grab the gold the next day using whatever violence they needed mm. to. Now, there is a eerie parallel between yeah. that. If you take out the violence, which is in a sense distraction from the parallel, there's an eerie parallel between that and what we know has gone on with our data. And we. this was the core of the Cambridge Analytics scandal in uh, March this year. Yeah. The whole swathe of people suddenly realizes that is what they've been accepting for a year or two. And most people, apart from those who are, have the luxury of studying these things, didn't realize all of that. Mm. Um, so there are these eerie parallels and they point to something that might be even a longer term implication of talking about all this in terms of colonialism, which is in terms of dehumanization. Um, we're not saying in the book that right now um, human beings in rich countries who are playing with apps on their phones are being dehumanized or treated subject to huge violence. Of course, that would be a grotesque uh, claim and highly disrespectful to people who are actually suffering yeah. violence and did in history. But what we're saying is that this way of interfacing with human beings through automation paves the way for ways of governing them that will not necessarily be putting a high, huge store by kindness, listening, giving voice and so on. They'll be driven by very other, very different dynamics. Um, and they may in the long run lead to a dehumanization or what to, to Israeli legal theorists call governance by proxy. Um, so we are pointing to that. And that, again, only really comes if you take the colonial perspective. Of course, capitalism has done atrocious things uh, to bodies and so on. It's also tried to reform itself uh, and introduce 
legislation in the workplace and so on. But the fundamental dehumanization of human subjects is something that fits best within that longer term colonial frame, because that was, of course, its core at the very beginning. It's what legitimated the endless appropriation of people. Um, so that's the third reason, if you like, why it seems to make sense to have this colonial frame, controversial though it might be, of course, to to some people. Yes, no, I mean, I think, it, of course, it's a, it's a very um, com convincing position and, and I've been very much taken with it. Um, before we, we'll start to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but yeah. just, just one thing to kind of end on, and I know this is a, an issue you deal with in the article, um, which is to kind of argue, at least to some extent, to argue against the kind of digital labour theories, which have, oh, yeah. become, which have become very kind of prominent in the, in the past few years, something I've engaged with myself as well. Um, which, um, for anyone who, who's listening who doesn't really know, I suppose can be very briefly summed up in the kind of position that uh, social media and uh, networks and, and platforms in general are sort of uh, appropriating the um, the activities of uh, of people and engagements online um, and uh, generating value um, through their their generation of data. Um, so some people have argued this should be seen as a, as a kind of labour. Um, yes. It just happens to be unpaid and, and taken through a relatively a, a reasonably traditional kind of Marxist uh, understanding of labour there. But you kind of argue against that uh, to some extent. Um, yeah. I think partly that's actually become quite clear through this discussion we've already had. But if you could just briefly um, say w uh, what your position is on that on that kind of issue. Yeah, well, um it's tricky in a sense because we don't we're arguing against the people who are allies if you like <laughs> yeah criticizing what's going on and we don't for a moment dismiss the importance of that work around digital labor since uh, Tiziana Terranova in 2000 it's very very yeah. important work because it pointed to an area of problem and an area of potential exploitation so we don't deny that for a moment but what we want to ask is a different question whether that's all that's going on um and that really makes a difference if you ask a different question, which is, OK, let's take a type of human activity that we know isn't work. It's it's mm -hmm. no one thinks of it as work. If you ask them when people hang out online and send pictures to each other, they are doing the one thing that is not work. They are relaxing. They're doing <laughs> what human beings do when they're not working, where they're deciding not to be productive. Now, it's true that results in value, but it's not because these are productive relations as these people see it. It's because the value is being extracted. Um, it is the means for something else to be taken through it. Um, and that opens up a very important point, because if this is what's going on, then it means that even aspects of human life that are very remote from labor or production become productive for someone. So there's no aspect left of human life, potentially, which isn't now annexed to capital that mm -hmm. can't generate. And so this is what we're trying to get to. That Marx, of course, anticipated the endless expansion of capitalism. But in traditional versions of Marxism, the argument was this can only happen through labor relations. So the only way to understand new forms of exploitation is to say labor relations have been expanded. We think that's wrong. Um, because there were other aspects to Marxist analysis which were involved in literally changing the inputs to the factors of production. He talks about seed and manure in the farming process a number of times in Capital, Volume 1. 
And we're suggesting, um, alarming though it is, that human life is becoming like seed and manure that was once, of course, outside of markets. It just went straight back into the natural process of recycling the fruits of the land. But then it started to be sold um, on markets because it had a commodity price and so on and so on. And even that was only possible because it could be abstracted into an entity that had a value in the market. And here we draw on the brilliant uh, Marxist theorist who died earlier this year, Moisha Postone, um, who did an amazing piece called Rethinking Marx for a Marxist Age. Uh, sorry, I got that wrong. He did an amazing piece called Rethinking Marx for a Post-Marxist Age, uh, which Slavoj Žižek talks about. And there he argues that the core of Marx's critical social theory, if you see it the right way, is not even labor relations. It's not even commodification, it's the abstraction that makes commodification, including commodification through labor relations possible. And when we discovered that piece, we realized this was, if you like, the core of the analysis of capitalism we were also trying to develop in the book, which was very different from just seeing this in terms of expanding labor relations. A new form of abstraction was stalking the social world through which radically new forms of value um, could be developed that in themselves, because they were involved in transforming the stuff of human life, could also have profound impacts for human freedom uh, as well. And that's the other thing we develop a bit more in the, in the book that's coming out next year that uh, the article is just a fragment from, if you like. So we engage with the uh, critical Marxism and traditional Marxism, but we argue that in the spirit of Marx as a great social theorist, we need to go back to his initial thoughts and reinterpret them for a very, very different age from the one he could have uh, anticipated. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, that's so valuable. It's, it's, it's a great intervention, I think, uh, into that. Um, yeah, and what, what I think I'm, I'm increasingly, um, um, increasingly coming around to, I think, as well. Um, on that, just on that final point, you mentioned uh, that it's obviously the article is part of a, a book. Uh, is there anything you can tell me as a kind of a sneak sneak yeah, preview sure. of what's coming up in the book? Sure. Um, so we've got a website about the book um, called colonizedbydata.com. Bizarrely, I don't know why it's .com. <laughs> Someone had already taken uh, .org. So <laughs> I don't know who they were, but anyway, it's colonized. Maybe it's just a joke on Ulysses' part. He set the website up. <laughs> anyway, colonizedbydata.com gives you some details about the book. We may be allowed to release a chapter there by the publishers. It's coming out um, next August, but you can already order it on uh, Amazon. Dare I mention them? <laughs> or, um, and I'm sure soon you'll be able to order it through the, the Stanford University Press. Uh, yeah. uh, website. They're the, they're the publishers. It's coming out next August. We'll be doing lots of talks next year about it. Um, and it gives you a much broader historical framing of this uh, way of thinking about uh, uh, data colonialism and also a lot more on the philosophical background to how we start to think about resisting all of this and how mm -hmm. we start the new forms of solidarity that we'll have to build if this historic change is to be resisted in the way, of course, that historic colonialism sadly was not that sounds fantastic i, I certainly um I, i'm really looking forward to it anyway so i'll i'll, I'll be there um great next <laughs> talk, definitely but um thanks again for talking to me nick and um um it's been great really uh really interesting and um hopefully uh, see you again soon yeah thank you very much chris it's been terrific talking thanks bye bye